Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. Sean Donnan, Senior Trade and Globalization Reporter uh, for Bloomberg News, is out with a story that's just fascinating here, and we want to uh, drill into that a little bit. It's entitled, A $2 trillion Rescue Leaves America's Black, uh, Black Neighborhoods Behind on Cleveland's East Side. Uh, so interesting. Sean, thanks so much for joining us here. Tell us kind of what your reporting uh, kind of brought to you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, I set out uh, back, uh, I guess, a month or so ago to to try and, and figure out if this uh, CARES Act, the, the fiscal rescue, had worked. And one of the big questions we immediately latched on to was who's getting left out? And where has America been hit hardest? And if you look at, if you've gone back a month or so ago and looked at the unemployment statistics, you would have discovered that about a fifth of workers in Cleveland had lost their jobs as a result of the crisis. The unemployment rate literally went from a little over uh, 3% to 23% in a matter of weeks. Uh, and uh, that, you know, we've, we've seen some incredible spikes around the country, but that was among the highest we've seen in any cities in the, in the, in the United States. And so I set out to, to, to head to Cleveland and started asking around, starting sitting down carefully with a mask on, secure park. Uh, outside, oftentimes, uh, asking people whether they were seeing this this big pot of money land anywhere near Cleveland. And the answer you get from people on the east side of Cleveland, which is predominantly black, is no, I'm not seeing it, and I need it. Well, there are some amazing stories in here. You talk about the Bethany Baptist Church, which was one of the 800,000 religious organizations that did get money, but not enough. And also this wonderful character, Tony Jones, who owns TJ's Barbershop, who only saw that the, the program was open three days before he was allowed to reopen. Tell us his story a little bit. Yeah, so Tony Jones is uh, a barber. He's a former steel worker who left that business uh, 20 plus years ago and opened this, bar- this barbershop. The TJ is Tony Jones. Uh, and he um, has, was forced to shut down in the, in the middle of the march uh, under orders from the state uh, and uh, quickly applied for unemployment and was rejected a number of times. He then uh, was told to wait to apply for this new thing, Pandemic Unemployment Assistance, uh, which was uh, this new program for self-employed workers who traditionally haven't been able to get unemployment. Uh, And he was knocked back from that as well. Uh, He had to wait, literally, as you say, until May 12th to even lodge his application there. He was allowed to reopen by the state May 15th. Uh, uh, But, you know, the reality is, uh, he's got nothing uh, from, from out of these uh, two billion dollars that have that have been appropriated. He's lost uh, his livelihood. Uh, he now, if you walk into his his barber shop, will tell you that he might see one, two clients in a day. He knows he's got a lot of people at home who need haircuts. They're still too afraid to to come get their their, their haircut, and he's stuck. And and he's that one little corner of of, of the American economy that hasn't gotten help. Who could sure use it? So, Sean, is there a common theme why some of these business owners have not received the help? Have they been denied? Have they been unable to uh, fill out the paperwork properly? What's kind of a common theme that you saw? So there's two common themes that, that you see. One is 
people like Tony Jones who have been denied. And in Ohio, something like 30% of people who applied for unemployment, traditional unemployment, uh, have had their applications uh, denied. State officials say some have been able to get the pandemic unemployment assistance, but it's unclear uh, how many. Um, they've been denied because Ohio, like a lot of states, actually has pretty strict standards for who they will give unemployment assistance to. You have to hit some thresholds, like in, in the case of Tony Jones, you know, he works full-time. He, according to the state, didn't work enough hours uh, to be eligible for unemployment assistance. The other big thing, though, that you see when you, you go onto the ground is people just don't have access to information. If you sit in Washington, you, are, you have become very familiar with all of these acronyms the PPP, the PUA, the CARES Act, all of those things. If you're sitting in, in the neighborhoods of, of, on the east side of Cleveland, uh, you don't have the same access to that information, and you're not quite sure uh, where the help is. In the case of one of the people I talked to, Elwood Clark, who uh, runs a property management and maintenance business, uh, he went to his bank to apply for a PPP loan because he'd heard about it. But by the time he went to the bank, the bank told him, that uh, there was no more money available. This was the first round of the PPP. He then has tried to get his bank interested in in helping him apply for a PPP loan since then, and he's just not getting uh, the calls back that bigger businesses have. He's like, you know, he's, he employs a couple of people. He's a small business in in in, in a neighborhood uh, that you know full of vulnerable people, and he just cannot get that people to pick up the phone, literally. At and the same time as he's struggling through all of these different acronyms to figure out if there's anything else that he might be eligible for, he's just decided, you know what, I'm just going to cobble together what I can. You talked to a city councilman who talked about that area uh, being at the literally the intersection of a range of pandemics so obviously not just coronavirus but a pandemic of crime lead poisoning chronic unemployment in fact you cite a statistic which is terrifying a child born today near the corner of 110th and woodland in this ward of cleveland has a life expectancy more than two decades shorter than one born in an affluent neighborhood just two miles away so there's really just a lot of systemic problems to be overcome and you know it's it's bit by bit and these these ppp loans and cares package and so on they they're they're designed to be put to effect immediately but when you're trying to battle you know decades of uh, yeah. systemic difference it's really difficult to put these into into use where they're needed absolutely i mean and that's the important point here is uh one of the things we've seen with this pandemic and we know this with the health results that we've seen and, and the effect on the black community and the Hispanic community uh, who have higher death rates, higher rates of, of transmission than, than, than white Americans. And that's largely because they are in these kind of frontline uh, jobs and, and have to keep working. Those inequities are there. They've been amplified by this crisis. And the worry that you see when you head to a place like the East Side of Cleveland is that they are only going to get worse. Well, Sean, everybody will read this story, hopefully, and get a little more educated on the problems in places like these areas of Cleveland. Sean Donnan joining us there on Bloomberg Radio. OPEC and its allies, they're going to restore some oil supplies next month, but according to Saudi's energy minister, the impact will be barely felt. That's one piece of oil market news today. The other is that inventories here in the US were down 7.5 million barrels. The market was looking for them to be down way less than that, and as a result, we are seeing 
a little bit of an increase in oil prices today. Let's bring in somebody who is all across this. Dr. Ellen Wald is president of Transversal Consulting. She's also a Bloomberg Opinion contributor and the author of Saudi, which is a history of Saudi Arabia through Aramco. Ellen, thank you so much for joining. The idea that OPEC is allowing oil supplies get restored just little by little and that it's basically holding fast to the agreement that was made some time back. Is that a good thing for the health of oil markets? I think it's a good thing that OPEC is keeping to the plan that it originally laid out because one of the uh, important things that OPEC has always done is provide this kind of long-term guidance for where oil production is headed. And in recent months, they really abandoned that by basically saying, hey, well, we're going to reevaluate everything on a month-to-month basis about, you know, whether we want to keep production lower or increase it or not. And so uh, the fact that they're giving this guidance um, you know, in in a slightly longer term situation, I think is a is a positive for markets because it helps markets understand uh, what OPEC is thinking and where they're going uh, in in a slightly longer term situation. Uh, but uh, on the other hand, is the market really ready for more production? Uh, Russia and Saudi Arabia are really big on saying, look, we're going to be consuming all of this oil domestically. Russia's seen domestic demand up. Saudi Arabia wants to put more into uh, its domestic markets. But at the same time, it's going to be another 2 million barrels a day. And demand, at least in the U.S., and in Europe is not necessarily showing that it's ready for for more oil. Yes, we did see a draw in crude oil stocks today from uh, in, in the United States, but in general, these stocks have been hitting record highs, and so there's still so much oil in storage. So, Ellen, give us as we talk about the supply side of the equation. Where what are the U.S. shale uh, producers doing today in terms of supply? Yeah, we're seeing production at about 11 million barrels a day, which is a pretty significant decline from where we were back in February when we were up at 13 million barrels a day. But uh, it's still not quite as much as they predicted it would drop. Now, uh, signs are and the indications are that we could see further uh, drops in production, particularly because uh, one of the factors of shale oil production is that you need to see more and more drilling in order for production to stay at the same levels and to increase. And we're not seeing applications for a lot more permits for drilling. We're not seeing, uh, you know, more rigs uh, opening up. So while some companies may be increasing their production because they're in better situation, we are seeing other companies that are going bankrupt, that are folding. And so uh, it's not out of the question to expect that U.S. oil production will drop further. Uh, That does, however, depend on the price of oil. And if things stay around $40 a barrel, that's enough for uh, a good number of shale oil companies to really uh, continue and possibly even expand their drilling. Well, that's just it. Saudi Arabia and Russia right now really depending on the Asian oil market, China in particular. Are they overestimating the capacity of that market to absorb their oil and therefore this extra two million barrels per day might sort of not find buyers? Yeah, it's, it's a, I think that's a really big, uh, important question. And I think that uh, both Saudi Arabia and Russia have been very, very focused recently in uh, investing in Asian markets, particularly in China. And they're very focused on demand. And demand from China in June was very strong. Uh, but China also puts a lot 
into storage. So uh, they were definitely, uh, you know, producing more products, buying oil and producing more products, but they were also putting oil into storage. And there's always a chance that uh, that strong demand may not hold up, uh, particularly when you look at how the demand picture is shaping up in Europe and the United States. And uh, the fact is that it's possible that Saudi Arabia and Russia may be too focused on their Asian customers and on the Asian market and not paying quite enough attention to some of the continued weaknesses that we're seeing in uh, the U.S. and in Europe. Yeah, that's kind of where I wanted to go, Ellen, as I think about you know, some of these really big states, California, Texas, Florida, you know, kind of slowing their reopening, maybe even shutting down certain parts of their economy. I can't imagine that bodes well for diesel fuel. And I, I, I mean, we saw Delta reduce the number of flights they're going to add uh, next month. So I think about jet fuel there. So, I mean, the demand side, it's got to be precarious at best, I would think. Yeah, it it really is. And I think that there's a risk in focusing too much on gasoline demand. And we have seen increases in gasoline demand, but it's not a straight lineup. We're looking at you know, we're looking at the uh, deliveries of gasoline to uh, service stations, and we're not necessarily seeing the kinds of major uh, increases. We'll see one week where it goes up, and then the next week where, uh, you know, it's going down. And I think that shows that there's it's really uneven, and that, yes, people are going out and they're traveling more than they were in April, but they're still traveling so much less than they were compared to last year. And uh, then when you put uh, jet fuel and you put diesel on top of that. I mean, diesel has been weak for for two years now, really. And so uh, any increase in diesel or jet fuel demand looks good, but you have to take into account the fact that it's so, so weak that, yes, there's an increase, but that doesn't mean that uh, we're seeing a big return or a big resurgence. Alan, I'm very curious about MBS these days. You know, we heard a lot about him until the killing of Jamal Khashoggi and suddenly, you know, he's gone very quiet. What's his position like security wise? Is he stable and what's his current strategy? That's, that's a huge, huge issue. I'm glad you, you brought that up because uh, one of the interesting things that we're seeing in Saudi Arabia right now is that they've decided to increase their VAT. Um, they recently instituted a VAT uh, to kind of put them in line with the, the VAT in other uh, Gulf countries, but now they've decided to increase it to, I think, about 15%, which is much higher than uh, compared to other economies in the Gulf, and that's really putting a strain on the Saudi population. And then we just uh, heard today that they've also decided to basically cut like two million people from their, you know, basically their welfare rolls, and that's going to have a big impact. And so what we're seeing in Saudi Arabia is that um, we're actually seeing people speak out against this and say, look, mm. you know, we're you're cutting our, uh, you know, our funds yep. just at this time when everything is more and more difficult, and that could really start to pose some issues for MBS, particularly as he right. looks like he's spending so much on these big projects and the population is suffering. Yeah, just it's extraordinary times there uh, in Saudi Arabia uh, and across the global oil patch. Dr. Ellen Wald, president, Transversal Consulting, also a Bloomberg Opinion contributor, joining us, giving us uh, kind of the latest on the global energy markets uh, as production starts to tick back up. We'll have more on that certainly going forward. 
news. Now let's move to the media sphere and Geetha Ranganathan, who is an analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. She covers all sorts of companies from Facebook to Apple to TikTok these days, Viacom, CBS. So much happening in the field as the pandemic reshapes media. Geetha, thanks for joining. Talk to us, first of all, about, uh, you know, theme parks and how you know we're seeing Disney bring people back but at a very small pace but yet it's theme parks that allow companies very often have their media uh, landscape sorted out for the year. Oh yeah absolutely Vani thank you so as you rightly pointed out the media sector has been completely pummeled by by COVID-19 you know we have movie theaters that have been shut down live sports is on hold and as you mentioned theme parks have been closed Of course, we're seeing some green shoots. So Disney, of course, opened its Florida theme park a little bit earlier this this week. Uh, But what was really tricky is as they were doing that, they were forced to close down uh, their Hong Kong uh, property uh, once again, starting actually today. So it's, it's, it's really a tricky situation. I mean, until a vaccine is widely available, I don't think we're going to be able to see these uh, uh, parks open to full capacity. So it's probably going to take another couple of years uh, before we see, uh, you know, theme park attendance kind of go back to pre-pandemic levels. So, Geetha, I mean, that, that's amazing in and of itself, a couple of years before we get back to the theme park attendance levels. And that's been such a driver for a lot of these big media companies, Disney, uh, Comcast, and some others. How about, you know, we take we think about the film and TV production. That's been effectively shut down on a global basis and while other manufacturing has started to reopen i think about you know the auto plants in detroit and so on they're starting to reopen but the the you know the manufacturing of the media industry that is making tv shows making movies that is still shut down what's the ripple effect and the repercussions for that across uh, the media landscape yeah, that's that's a great point that you bring up, uh, Paul. Um, it is it is effectively being shut down, which means that the whole fall TV season, the season that all advertisers are kind of excited about, typically every year, is is kind of completely gone away. Uh, which is why it's really important for um, you know TV networks that sports, uh, because if you, if you really think about it, sports and entertainment, those are the two big components that bring in mm-hmm. audiences. With, you know, production kind of shut down, it's really important. You know, all of these media companies are now banking heavily on the return of live sports, which should then hopefully spark back uh, an advertising rebound as well. Geetha, we're looking for Netflix earnings tomorrow. I mean, that's one company that should have a very different story from the rest of the companies. I mean, it literally added millions of new subscribers thanks to the pandemic. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we're seeing, you know, COVID-19 is really accelerating the shift of, you know, viewers away from traditional TV to streaming. We saw that in Netflix's numbers in one queue. I mean, they guided to about 7 million. They came in at about 15 million or so. Uh, Again, we've seen the download momentum uh, across the app space very, very strong for all streaming apps in general, and especially for Netflix. Uh, both in the domestic market as well as the international market, especially Asia, where downloads were up almost 150%. So with cancellations at record lows, um, we actually think that those numbers are going to come in really, really strong. They've again guided for about 7.5 million um, global subscribers, but we think they'll be in at a much, much higher level. So is this is the cord cutting, uh, Geetha, in the next 30 seconds here, is cord cutting just accelerating here? 
Oh, absolutely. COVID-19, Paul, has put court cutting on steroids. Uh, I mean, there's reduced disposable income, no sports, the economic fallout. That's just a perfect storm. Mm. And we're seeing that base of court cutting get really, really higher and higher. Wow, it's just extraordinary. Like uh, the, the those trends affecting the media industry are just being accelerated here. Geetha Ranganathan, thanks so much for joining us. Geetha is uh, one of the top media analysts on Wall Street, and we're fortunate to have her at Bloomberg Intelligence giving us her thoughts here. We got Netflix uh, tomorrow reporting. That'll be interesting news. That stocks had a great run. One of those handful of names that's really benefited uh, from the the shutdown uh, from the coronavirus. And uh, but again, the the media sector overall really facing some just challenging, challenging headwinds as people consume media in much different ways and in much less profitable ways uh, for the media companies. And so what we're seeing is a lot of these big media companies led by the Walt Disney Company trying to catch up and compete with Netflix and, and they try to pivot towards streaming and we'll see how they do here but uh, their core businesses the cable networks the theme parks all those things, the movies really, really challenged right here. So, uh, And the stocks are reflecting it. Goldman Sachs of 1.9%. That is probably the one that the market is most focused on, at least in earlier hours of the session. So let's bring in somebody who knows a lot about banks and how they work and whether they work. Chris Whalen of Chris Whalen Advisors is great to have you back on uh, the radio, Chris, and to chat with you. Talk to us about Goldman Sachs. You said you went into the Q2 earnings season with a combination of expectation and dread. How do you feel this morning? Well, I feel a little better uh, when Goldman is making money that tells you that the markets are functioning uh, and we need to look to make sure that all the different market sectors are functioning. And the good news is that they are. Um, But on the other hand, the credit costs that we've seen from J.P. Morgan and the rest of the banks are of concern because we're looking at losses this year, Bonnie, that could be twice 2009 in terms of credit. And it's different from 2009 because it's not about residential real estate and private mortgage securities. This time it's about commercial real estate and commercial exposures of all kinds. Any kind of small, mid-sized, even large business you can think of that's affected by this uh, terrible disease and the the reaction to COVID-19 is affected. The whole services sector, you know, New York, Bonnie, we, we both live here, everything in the arts everything in hospitality. Um, so, you know, we're, we're facing a tough couple of years, I think. Uh, Dick Bovey was out with a note this morning saying that, and I totally agree with Dick. Uh, this is a credit event, mm. and it's going to take time to work through, but the good news is all of the assets I just mentioned, aircraft, hotels, whatever, uh, are managed by professionals. And so unlike resolving co- uh, consumer issues as we had to 10 years ago, and you remember that, it was brutal. It went on for years and years and years. My sense is this time people are going to cut to the chase. You saw the way the markets reacted. We had two weeks of death and destruction at the end of March, and then we had one of those great buying opportunities in April. Uh, I sold most of my common shares in banks, all of them, in fact. U.S. Bank was my last position, and I loaded up on preferreds because they were trading close to par again. They had been very expensive because of the income. So I think you know there's still an enormous hunger on the street, Bonnie, for duration. And it's good to see City and Goldman coming in with some uh, some good numbers because I think we need to make sure that the markets are functioning, the Fed's done the right thing. And the big good news for me is that the residential mortgage sector this year is going to have record production. We're going to be up 40% on volume year over year. 
and All right, so very, Chris, very good profitability, too. Yeah, so, Chris, as we look across these earnings over the last couple of days, and we've got, still got Morgan Stanley and some others coming up, um, obviously the theme is the, you know, the, the capital markets business have been you know, kind of coming to the rescue here with a, a tremendous volatility in trading levels, and that's been great for the folks yeah. that have big trading desks. But as you point out, uh, Chris, those, those loan loss provisions, and even the commentary I took from Jamie Dimon uh, yesterday really suggested that it's going to be tough for a perhaps a longer period than maybe the market initially anticipated. Well, that's right. The metaphors about Vs and, and U-shaped recoveries and all that, I think, reflect the past. They reflect our view that most of the issues we've had in recent years have been liquidity driven and the market snapped back. You saw how fast people came back this time. Yeah. It was remarkable. So the thing is, so credit is different in credit. We have to reduce the value of assets. We have to apply losses to equity and in some cases debt. And then we're going to turn the debt holders that remain into the owners and start again. So that's the difference. And I think for banks, you know, we've already got over a hundred on the on the fire in terms of loss provisions, a hundred billion dollars in provisions, and I think we could see twice that. Will they end up losing all of that? No. A lot of that number may get recovered later on, but the industry is forced for a lot of reasons to kind of take a worst case scenario, mark things down. I think this quarter, next quarter won't be so bad, but by the time we get to the fourth quarter for the banks, there's going to be a lot of stuff taken to the curb. They'll just have to to clean house. And then we've got to get ready for the next cycle, the next year. Chris, so, um, It's fascinating. I was hoping they'd come in lower, JP, but they came in higher this time. So There is so much that I would like to ask you about. We won't have time today, but maybe you can give me some quick thoughts on a mortgage finance, the future of Freddie and Freddie. You just talked about how, you know, mortgage underwriting and so on will be up 40% this year. But also this new SEC proposal to have a $3.5 billion threshold for public disclosure of equities holdings. That's all the way up from just $100 million. What mm-hmm. does that mean? But in terms of having to disclose beneficial ownership? Well, no, um, in terms of, you know, the public knowing who owns what, you know, who I'm talking about the likes of Stan Rockenmiller, George Soros, Bridgewater, John Paulson. Is right. it important for the public to know what they own? In terms of stocks, sure, yeah. of course. Yeah. If, especially if it's a control position, if the new cash coming in has influence on management, then of course it's material. Um, but, you know, to your other question, I think uh, Resi may pull us out of this mess. I mean, we are going to print money. Uh, we're going to do probably $3.2 trillion in residential mortgages this year, mostly rate refis. That puts cash back in the households. That's a beautiful thing. And then... We're still doing purchase mortgages, Bonnie. People are migrating out to the suburbs again. Who would have thought, right? We would have been sitting here talking about walkability of cities last year. <laughs> right. So yeah. the whole narrative is flipped over. And I think, you know, for a while, uh, it's going to be very helpful. Multifamily, too. Most of those assets are fine. And I think they'll continue to be very attractive for investors. The big question is commercial. Um, and that you, you see that in the REITs. If you look at any of the valuations for the big equity REITs, the ones with office and retail exposure are showing it. Uh, you know, it's, right. it's, uh, it's stark, frankly, the difference between different sectors. Yep. If you own warehouses, you're a, a genius. Yep. 
Hey, Chris, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate uh, it as always. Chris Whalen, chairman of the Whalen Global Advisors uh, based in New York City, giving us his thoughts on the market here. We have, again, a, a lift to the market here. Some good Goldman Sachs uh, numbers and some good vaccine data. This is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.